Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38 is where we're going to be focusing. Job 38, 39, 40, 41, and 42. We're going to go through the whole book, or the rest of the book. We'll finish it up this morning. If you don't have a Bible... There's a, there's a hardback brown Bible right in front of you, in the pew in front of you. And if you find that, it's on page 380. So it's in a Bible like this. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat in front of you, page 380. And we are going to begin in Job chapter 38. Let me read to you aloud here the first few verses of the chapter. And then we'll pray and jump in. We'll read one through seven. Hear then the word of the living God. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know who stretched a measuring line across it. What supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Father, we want to hear and heed your words this morning because your words give life. Your spirit uses the words that he has here inspired to give life, to teach us, reprove us, correct us, and, for, and to train us in righteousness so that we may be men and women of God, equipped and competent for every good work. And you call us to a great work of obeying and honoring and glorifying your great name with our lives in health and in sickness, in pain and in pleasure, in trial and in treasure, in prosperity and in adversity. And so we ask that this section of Scripture would give us life and light to guide us. This cannot happen apart from your Son and from your Spirit, and so we ask for your help now. In the mighty name of Jesus, who died for us and rose to give us this strength. In his name we pray. Amen. On November 10th, 2015, just last year, you've heard this story before, some of you, A pastor went out to run at 6 o'clock a.m. in Indiana. And during that time, two young men, 18 and 21, broke into his house for a robbery. His pregnant wife was there and their 15-month-old son. Well, in the process of robbing the house, they ended up beating up the wife and then killing her, shooting her. Three times in the home invasion. The pastor came home. To, you know, to an open door and, and to that situation. And um, it's been not quite a year yet. And um, can't imagine what this last 11 months has been for our brother there in Indiana. Both he and his wife were children of pastors. Her dad was a, a lead pastor in Indiana. And um, his dad was a pastor in North Carolina. And so we asked the question, where was God 
on November 10th in Indiana. Where was he that morning? George Mueller, who lived from 1805 to 1898, a famous Christian hero worthy of emulation in many ways, known for asking God for great things and receiving great answers to great prayers. He was accustomed to having God answer his prayers, and so his wife got sick, and he prayed for God to heal her of a fever. She died of that fever that he asked that that she'd be healed from. And of course, he was heartbroken, having lost his wife of 39 years. And so we asked the question, why did God say no to his prayer? Why does God allow bad things to happen in our lives, in my life, in your life? Why is he being mean? Maybe we feel that way. Maybe negligent. What's his explanation for these tragedies, for the tragedy in my life? And often all we get is silence. Why won't he just answer with a clear answer? Why won't he just give us a clear, reasonable explanation? I'm sure he has one. Why doesn't he just give us a clear, reasonable explanation for why things are happening? We all wonder and ask these questions from time to time. And if you haven't, you will. And what makes this problem such a problem is not just because our minds are wondering about why God's doing this, it's that our hearts lose inner peace, right? The peace of mind, the peace of heart, that, that we know that things are well, we lose that. And that's the biggest problem with this whole thing, is that we can't sleep. We can't think, we can't concentrate. The pain and suffering of unanswered questions infect and increase the pain and destroy true peace of mind. We're plagued with restlessness, in our souls. And Job had that same struggle. So he prayed his final request in Job 31 verses 35 to 37 was this. If only I had someone to hear my case. I'm innocent. I haven't done anything wrong. Why is God allowing this? If only I had someone to hear my case. I continue the quote. He says, here is my signature. Let the almighty answer me. Let my opponent compose his indictment. I would surely carry it on my shoulder and wear it like a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. I would approach him like a prince. I haven't done anything wrong. I mean, I'm not saying I'm sinless, but I haven't done anything wrong to, to bring on this supernatural, extra, um, increased suffering. And so in Job asking why, and Job asking, where are you, God, and give me an answer, there's also a little bit of finger pointing involved. A little bit of pointing his finger at God. Where's your answer, God? Examine me. I'll give you a full answer of my life. I have a clear conscience. Come and examine me. I'll give you an account of every single one of my steps. And show me, tell me why this is happening. Well, God answers. God answers Job. We just read the beginning of his answer here in Job 38. And the main idea here is that we need to heed God's answer. When God answers, we need to heed it. Hear it. And obey it. We need to heed the answer of God. So how are we going to do that? We're going to do it three ways. We need to receive God's words. We need to respond to his words. And then we need to rejoice in his grace and in his justice. Okay? Or we can say we rejoice in his words and acts. So we receive God's words. We respond to God's words. And then we rejoice in the words and actions of God. 
So number one, let's just take those three. And if we do this, we'll get the essence of Job 38 to 42. And we will be able to, we'll be equipped to heed God's answer to our why question. So number one, receive God's words. This is chapters 38 to 41. Four chapters here for this first point, because this is all God's words. So we're going to summarize God's words and hear and heed the words of God. Finally, Job gets his answer, right? Three, three guys, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Job gives his final soliloquy, his, his eloquent answer at the end. You think God's coming, but who did we have last week? Elihu, right? Six more chapters of the surprise guest friend coming in to delay the response of God. And now God finally answers. And essentially he's saying this in chapter 38. I created the world. I designed the universe. I understand how it works. Do you, Job? Do you, First Southern Baptist Church? Do you, brother or sister? Do you understand the design of this universe? I do, says God. And so let's look at a few of these verses. Look at verse 1. It says, The Lord answered him from the whirlwind. So God comes in the whirlwind here. And so God sometimes speaks with a still small voice. Here it's not a still small voice. This is a whirlwind because it's also expressing the disposition that, Jesus, that God is coming with towards Job. And notice in verse 1 it says, Then the Lord answered Job. And when you see Lord there, it's all capital, right? What does that mean? It's not the word Lord in Hebrew. It's what word? Yahweh, and that's the personal covenant name of God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is about to answer Job. The God who promises blessing on this cursed world through Abraham's seed is about to answer Job. And so he comes in the whirlwind. In verse 2 he says, Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? There's his description of Job. We know it's a description of Job. Job's going to quote it in 42, owning it for himself. So what is Job doing with all of his words? obscuring or covering God's what? Counsel. God's wisdom. Job, you keep talking and you cover and obscure and confuse my wisdom. With what? What what kind of words is Job spewing here? Ignorant. Ignorant words. Ignorant words. And so God says in verse 3, Get ready to answer me when I question you. You will inform me. Now get ready to answer me has the idea of girding up one's loins. If you were, uh, uh, if you were running or if you were fighting in battle in those days, you didn't have pants like we have today. You'd have you know, a tunic that goes to the floor, and you would pull up the tunic and tie it so you could be more mobile in running or in fighting in battle. So God is saying to Job, put up your dukes. Let's rumble. You wanted an answer? You've been complaining about an answer? You have ignorant words, and you think that, that you're right and you just if, if you could just talk to me, then you would tell me how to do things. All right, get ready to fight. Listen to my words. So he gets to verse 4, verses 4 through 7. He says, where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Now, these are not, these are not rhetorical questions. God wants an answer. So let's answer. Where was Job and where were you when God established, established the earth? Where were you? You weren't there. Right? Not there. Verse 5, who fixed its dimensions? Who, who fixed it? God did, right? Certainly you know, Job, because you're the one who's going to correct me. Who stretched out the measuring line across the whole universe? What supports its foundations or who laid its cornerstone? 
What's holding up the earth, Job? What's holding up the stars? What's holding up the sun? What's holding up our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy? What's holding up our 40 clusters of galaxies in our area? What's holding up all the galaxies in the universe, Job? Surely you know what holds it all up. Is there a string? What's the foundation? You remember the ancient mythology of of the, uh, what's his name? Atlas, right? Carrying the globe. They get to outer space. There's no man carrying the globe. Who's holding it up? You know Job, right? And I like this. Verse 7 says, While the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. When God created the world, it was a party. It was a celebration. It was one of the greatest, you know, one of the greatest displays in the universe next to the cross and maybe the second coming. Where God speaks the world into existence and the angels get a front row seat. Imagine being there for that. That kind of viewing party. Let's go watch God create a universe. And they sing for joy and celebrate his greatness. Where were you, Job, during that first party? Were you there? He moves on and he talks about the oceans. Look at verses 10 and 11. I like this. When I determined its boundaries, talking about the oceans, and put its bar its bars and doors in place. When I declared you may come this far and no further, your proud waves stop here. I love thinking about this verse every time I go to the beach for every wave. You see every wave crash. You see the, the line where the sand is wet and the line where the sand is dry for that wave. And you think, why did it stop right there on that sand and not the next grain of sand? Because God said right there. For that wave, you stop right there. No further. Next wave comes in, you stop right there. No further. God sets the boundaries of the waves, of the ocean. Do you do that, Job? Do you do that for Southern Baptist Church? You, you tell the ocean where to stop? Moving on, verses 12 and 13. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or assigned the dawn its place so it may seize the edges of the earth and shake the wicked out of it? The wicked love to, to, to do things in darkness, right? So God calls forth the dawn and the sunrise and the wicked have to hide again. They scatter like bugs because they can't let their, wor- their words and works be exposed in the light. Are you the one who does that, Job? Do you command the sun to come out every morning? This is a very theistic way of thinking about the world. Why does the sun rise? Well, because the earth is rotating. And when the earth rotates, the sun looks like it's rising. It's not actually rising. The earth is rotating, we might say. But who's, who's rotating the earth? Who's keeping the sun there? Every morning for us in Los Angeles. Who's doing it? God is. We need to not be so ho-hum about a sunrise. We should be looking at a sunrise and thinking, He did it again! Look! It came out again! The earth rotated one more time! Here it is, the sunrise. It's amazing. Look at the colors. Look at God's work this morning. So where were you, Job, when that happened? Look at verse 16. Verse 16, have you traveled to the sources of the sea or walked into the depths of the ocean? How deep is the ocean? 11,034 meters, 34,000 feet, seven miles deep at its deepest part. Seven miles doesn't sound far when you're thinking length. When you think height or depth, that's really deep. Deeper than the tallest mountain by far. So Job is summarizing verse, you know, this, this chapter, he's talking, well, he's talking about, well, look at verse 17, sorry. 17 says, have the, he's talking about the oceans, and then verse 17 says, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? So now the ocean is tied to the gates of what? Death. 
Oceans in, in Old Testament poetry is often a symbol for chaos, disorder, and even death. So have you plumbed the depths of the oceans seven miles deep? Do you know the depths of, have you been at the gates of death? Have you been to the place of the dead? You're talking earlier, Job, about how it would have been better for you to die than be alive. Do you even know what it's like to be in the place of the dead, Job? Have you been there? Do you understand what you're talking about? Verses 18 to 21, have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Verse 28, does the rain have a father? Who fathered the drops of the dew? Look at verse 32. Can you bring out the constellations in their season and lead the bear and her cubs? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you impose its authority on earth? Can you command the clouds so that a flood of water covers you? Verse 35, can you send out lightning bolts as they go? Do they report to you, here we are, on time, striking exactly where you told me to strike? Does nature respond to you, Job? Do you control and understand nature? Yes or no? No. Who does? God does. And God wants Job to say it out loud. Say it, Job. Do you? No. Who? You. Chapter 39. So he asks, for, so now we're in 38. He, he's talking about the inanimate universe, so to speak, not, not animated. And then he's going to talk now about animals and creatures who have life in them. And not just life like trees, but life even minds like animals. So you get to 38 verse 39. And he says, can you hunt, pray for a lioness or satisfy an ap- the appetite of young lions? You know, that verse helped me recently because sometimes when you watch like um, National Geographic or something and you see a, a lion kill and you're just like, sometimes you get sad for the thing that's killed. But then reading this verse, I'm reminded, oh, wait, God's the one who's feeding that lion. And that's part of God's order. doesn't mean you can't have compassion. Um, but it's just to say that even then, God is still in control. When they crouch in their dens and lie in wait for their, within their lairs. Verse 41, who provides the raven's food? When it's young, cry out to God and wander about for lack of food. I like that idea of the ravens praying, crying out to God for food. Doesn't Jesus pick up on this in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, don't worry about your life. God feeds the birds of the air. He clothes the grass of the field. Won't he take care of you? God feeds the animals. The lioness, the raven, look at 39.1. Do you know when mountain goats give birth, Job? Have you watched the deer in labor? Verse 5, have you, who set the wild donkey free? Job, tell me. Did you set the wild donkey free? I made the wilderness its home. And the salty wasteland, it's dwelling. Have you thought about that, Job? Who set the wild donkey free? You didn't even know to think about that. But I know those things. Look at 39.9. Would the wild ox be willing to serve you? Would it spend the night by your feeding trough? Can you tame the wild ox? You could have a domesticated ox, but a wild ox? And then look at this. This is very interesting to me. And I have a theory here. I'm not going to say thus says the Lord. It's a theory. But look at this ostrich. This one is kind of weird. So you're talking about the lion, the, um, you have the lion, you got the raven, you got the mountain goats, you have the wild donkey, you got the wild ox. Later, you're going to talk, he's going to talk about the horse. But here he talks about the ostrich. And I want to think about the ostrich with you for a second. Look at 39, 13. He says, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but are her feathers and plumage like the storks? She abandons her eggs on the ground and lets them be warmed in the sand. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that some wild animal may trample them. So she's not taking care of her eggs. Verse 16, she treats her young harshly as if they were not her own. 
with no fear that her labor may have been in vain. So she's, she doesn't take care of her eggs. They're endangered. They're neglected. She deals harshly with them. Why? Verse 17. For God has deprived her of wisdom. He has not endowed her with understanding. She proudly spreads her wings. She laughs at the horse and its rider. She's faster than them. But the point here is that the ostrich is foolish in taking care of its young. Why? Because who made it that way? God did. Did you do that, Job? Even foolish animals I've made that way by my design. Now, that's, that's on the surface of it, but I, here's my theory. This came to me, and I'm not sure if this is right, so I'll just say this as a theory. Could it be that God is describing the way Job thinks of God? Isn't Job sort of calling God an ostrich in the way that he um, has talked about God? I'm suffering here, God. Where are you? Are you even, are you even paying attention to me, God? Do you even know my case? Didn't, God, didn't Job call God his enemy? Didn't he say that God dealt with him harshly and cruelly? It's almost like Job is saying implicitly that God is foolish. Just like the ostrich. And God's owning is like, I made the ostrich that way. And you're going to call me a fool? You're going to say that I'm neglecting you? Because of what you went through? 3919. Do you give strength to the horse? Did you adorn his neck with a mane? Verses 26 and 27. Does the hawk take flight by your understanding? Do they follow your flight patterns and spread its wings to the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and make its nest on high? What's the answer to that? Yes or no? Does, does Job do that? No. no. He does not command it. And that's what God wants Job to know. So here's a summary of this section. God is basically saying, can you take care of the animals and make sure that the animal kingdom is provided for and guided? Would you be so sure of yourself to call me foolish? And so he talks about inanimate creation, the universe, talks about the animal kingdom, and then he moves on. But before he moves on, God pauses here. Look at chapter 40 now. We get to chapter 40 as we want to heed God's words. So here... Look at 40 verse 2. This is what God says. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. So what is God saying that Job is trying to do to him? Job is trying to what? Do what to God? Question him or to use the word there, correct him. Job is trying to correct God. And God is saying, would you really correct me? What's Job's answer in verse 3? Then Job answered, Yahweh, the Lord. I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not reply twice. But now I can add nothing. Job always had an answer for his friends. And actually his friends were wrong and that's why he had a good answer for them. Now that God speaks, what's Job's answer? That I don't have an answer. I got nothing to say. Job is silent now before God. And so what does God say in response? Verse 6. The Lord answered Job from the world. Get ready to answer me like a man. Put up your dukes, Job. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? And then he continues on. He's not done yet. I'm not done with you yet, Job. God's goal for Job is not silence. It's surrender. And Job is not ready to surrender yet. He's silent. Put my hand over my mouth. 
Job wanted to contend with God. Job wanted to correct God. Job was willing to call God unfair and unjust. God rebukes him and Job says, I got nothing else to say. And then God says, I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done rebuking you. I'm not done reproving you. Is God loving Job right now? Yes, he is, right? He's loving Job, but love hurts sometimes. And it hurts this time. The point here is God is finished when he's finished. On his time, not ours. We do that at times, don't we? Someone's correcting us and we say, stop talking about it. I already got it. No more conversation needed. I get it. No, you haven't got it yet. You're not humbled. That's why you're, that's what you're, you're trying to silence the conversation to end it already, but you have not yet been humbled before the Lord. You know when someone's broken when they stop defending themselves. They stop trying to end the conversation early. They let God do his work. And Job here, I got nothing more to say. And God says, well, I got a lot more to say. And you're going to hear it, and you need to hear it. And I'll be done when I'm done, not when you tell me I'm done. Just like a great surgeon is not done with his surgery, but needs to cut out all of the cancer, God, the best surgeon in the world, is not done yet cutting out the sin and, and, and fulfilling his purpose. Now, it would be ridiculous, would it not be, if you were on the table, on the operation table, and you said to the, you said to the surgeon, you're done now. You can let me up now. And they're like, well, no, I'm not done. Yes, I, yes, I said you're done. Put me back together now. Close me up. That's, that's ridiculous, right? And that's what we do to God. I get it, God. I already got the lesson. That's, that's, that's just foolish. The surgeon is still working. Let him do his work. And so he continues. So he takes it up a notch now from the, from the universe, stars and oceans and skies and rain. Now he goes to the animals and now he moves beyond the animals. And now he goes to humans. He goes to humans. Look at verse Where are we now? Verse 9, chapter 40, verse 9. Do you have an arm like God's? Can you thunder? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and clothe yourself with honor and glory. Unleash your raging anger. Look on every proud person. So in verse 10, he's telling Job, Job, you want to be king? You think you can run this earth? Fine, put on your crown. Put on the king's robe. You do it. Verse 11, what do I want you to do? Here, here's what you do, Job. Unleash your raging anger, Job. Look on every proud person on earth and humiliate them. Seven billion humans on earth today. Do you know every proud and arrogant one? You're the king who knows how to run the universe? Okay, you humble all of them. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. All right, Job, humble the proud. Humiliate them. Bring them low, Job. You know how to do it. Here's the crown. Here's the robe. There's the throne. Take your seat and do it. Verse 12, look on every proud person and humble him. Trample the wicked where they stand. You do the justice, Job. You're the fair one. You know justice, right? You know what's fair. Hide them together in the dust, verse 13. Imprison them in the grave. Then when you do that, Job, verse 14, then I will confess to you that your own right hand can deliver you. Can you do that, Job? Can you do that, brother or sister? Can you be the perfect judge on this earth today? Can you coordinate all the crimes and all the arrogance and all the bad attitudes and humble them perfectly? Do you have the master plan? You can't humble the arrogant. You can't perfectly deal with all of them. Remember, remember Job was saying that the arrogant just get away with things and prosper? At least it seems that way. 
You can't humble the arrogant, though. Not even fantasy superheroes, comic book superheroes. Obviously not real. Batman couldn't do it. Superman couldn't do it. You can't do it. And then God moves from proud humans that you can't humble, and then he moves to these two strange creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan. Here we go, Behemoth and Leviathan. Chapter 40, verse 15. Look at Behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. Look at the strength of his loins and the power of the muscles of his belly. He stiffens his tail like a cedar tree. The tendons of his thighs are woven firmly together. His bones are bronze tubes. His limbs are like iron rods. He is the foremost of God's work. Only his maker can draw him, can draw the sword against him. The hills yield food for him while all sorts of wild animals play there. He lies under the lotus plants, hiding in the protection of marshy reeds. Lotus plants cover him with their shade. The willows of the brook surround him. Verse 23, though the river rages, behemoth is unafraid. He remains confident even if the Jordan surges up to his mouth. So this is a land animal, eats grass, but is powerful and strong and basically untamable and unbreakable. Fears nothing. So what is this behemoth? Some might say it's a dinosaur, right? Uh, whatever the equivalent of a brontosaurus is today. I know that that doesn't exist anymore, at least of latest research. Or a hippopotamus. Some have thought it's a hippopotamus. Others say it's a mythical creature or god. There, there's this one theory that it's possibly, it stands for, uh, stands for death or mat, behemoth, mat, which is the god of death in some of the pagan ancient Near Eastern religions. Moth was a god of death, and so they think maybe it's an allusion to, to death and the god of death. Uh, one, one theologian says, and I'm going to say it's either death or a representative, a, a, a representative of all creatures. And here's why. Here, I'll read to you what um, Tom Schreiner writes. Though a number of proposals have been put forward regarding the identity of this creature, Dwayne Garrett rightly says that none of these identifications fit. Dwayne Garrett says, quote, Behemoth appears to be a kind of composite animal that represents the strength, domain, and independence of the animal world. It is wild, powerful, and free. Behemoth is not a supernatural creature, but it is more than, a, one, it is more than one natural animal. It is kind of a conceptual being, a representative of animal wildness, or perhaps all the wildness and ferocity of the animal world, including humans, just everything. So it's kind of, this is like God, this is the climax of God talking about what he's powerful over. Star, sky, non-animals. God's got that, right? Check. Animals. Can God rule over all animals? Got that. Check. What's the, what's the crown of God's creation? Man, right? Can God humble all arrogant men? Yeah. Yes. Check. You think, well, that, that's the highest. Well, then you got behemoth and Leviathan. So, so behemoth could be one way of wrapping it all up and saying all living creatures because the description here is... Is some of it is you know some of it could be literal of like a certain animal, but maybe it's it's a poetic way of referring to all the animals, or it could be referring to death. I don't know between the two. It's not super important that we figure that out, but I think it still makes the point that whether it's death, does God rule over death? Yeah. Yes. Does God rule over all of the ferocity of all the animal kingdom put together? Yeah. Yes. God rules over it all. Do you? No. Does Job? No. And that's the point. Will you contend with me? And correct me. 
And then, and then he gets to Leviathan. Now let's go to Leviathan, chapter 41. Look at, let's get a description here of this, this creature. 41.1, talking to Job again, can you pull in Leviathan with a hook or tie his tongue down with a rope? He's talking about fishing here, right, in the ocean. Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he beg you? Will Leviathan beg you for mercy or speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you so that you can take him as a slave forever? Can you play with him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? I got four girls. Think about, can you put Leviathan on a leash and tame him? 29 through 33 of this chapter. A club is regarded as stubble to Leviathan, and he laughs at the sound of a javelin. Try to pierce him with a javelin, he laughs. His undersides are jagged potsherds, spreading the mud like a threshing sledge. He makes the depths seas like a cauldron. He makes the sea like an ointment jar. So he rules over the sea. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had gray hair. Talking about the oceans had gray hair because of him. He has no equal on earth. A creature devoid of fear. He surveys everything that is haughty. He is king over all the proud beasts. What is that? Some have said a crocodile. Sounds a little bit outlandish for a crocodile, right? I mean, you got individual men wrestling crocodiles. Doesn't sound like, you know, doesn't sound like like that that intimidating. A whale? Certainly in that day, during Job's time, I mean, when they barely had any kind of navigation in the sea, you know, a whale would certainly be a formidable opponent that no one could conquer in that day. Not so much the case today, though, right? I mean, yes, they are still very powerful, but uh, we got nuclear weapons and we got all kinds of things that we could, if we wanted to kill a blue whale, we'd, we humans could figure out a way to do that. Is it a mythical creature? Perhaps. Here's what Dwayne Garrett says, and I think he's right. It's pointless to try to explain this as a metaphor, metaphorical creature. Or not, uh, it's, it's pointless to explain it merely as one of the creatures in the sea or one of the creatures that live here. Every other creature is described with maybe a little bit of exaggeration, but not this much. Why? Look at 41.18. Look at 41.18 in your Bible. Here's a description of Leviathan. When she proudly spreads her wings, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter, 41:18. His snorting flashes with light while his eyes are like what? The rays of the dawn. His eyes are lighting up. Verse 19, flaming torches shoot from where? His mouth, fiery sparks fly out. He breathes what? Breathes fire, right? Verse 20, smoke billows from his nostrils. As, a pot, as from a boiling pot or burning reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames pour out of his mouth. A, a fire-breathing whale. A fire-breathing crocodile? Yeah, maybe a dragon. And that's right, I think. It's not referring to merely an animal. Now, I think Leviathan could be like a blue whale generally, but remember what is the sea symbolizing? Chaos, disorder, and what? Death, and there's someone who rules over it. He's the king of all the proud beasts. I think it's, well, listen to Psalm 74, 13 and 14. Psalm 74, 13 and 14 says, You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. God crushes the sea monster that rules over the sea. 
Now remember, the sea is a symbol of chaos, disorder, evil, and death. But remember, look at Job 3.8. You guys have your Bibles there. Look at, remember Job 3.8? Turn there, but keep your finger in Job 41. Job 3.8 says this. Remember when Job wanted to not be born? He even called for witchcraft, sort of. In Job 3, verse 8, he says, Let those who curse certain days cast a spell on it, on my birth date. Any of those who can curse days and cast spells, let them cast a spell on my birth date. I wish I was never born. And then he says, Those who are skilled in what? Rousing who? Leviathan. So you're casting spells, you're casting curses. It's a supernatural, demonic force, spiritual forces, and you're rousing who? Leviathan. So who is Leviathan? Isaiah 27.1 says this. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Who do you think Leviathan is representing? Satan. And God will crush Leviathan in the sea, the ruler of the dead, the ruler of the rebellious, the ruler of the proud. God will crush him. I will put enmity between Genesis three. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you will crush or you. He he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So Job one and two opens with God and who? Who's the deal between God and Satan? Now God comes around the end of the book and who's he talking about? Satan, and who is Satan to him? A plaything. On the leash. For, girl, for his girls. Just uses Satan, this great, mighty creature, proud king of all the proud people, and he's like a tool, a pet to God, used for his purposes. Jim Hamilton writes, there's a kind of inclusio in the book of Job. The whole book is bracketed by Yahweh's enticing Satan to do his bidding at the beginning and by putting his hook in Leviathan's nose at the end. This indicates that Yahweh has orchestrated all events described in the book of Job. Satan is not to blame for what happened in Job. I rule the world. I rule Leviathan. He's my pet. I was in charge when your children were killed. I was in charge when your servants were murdered. I was in charge when the storm hit the house. I am God. And I rule. Ending here with Satan exposes the climax that God is in control. And it exposes our inability to understand how God runs this world. We just don't understand how it all fits. Job can't humble arrogant men. And God not only humbles arrogant men. He humbles the most arrogant of all, Satan. And isn't that what this book is about? Take away his his stuff, take away his blessings, and he'll curse you. Take away his health, and he'll curse you to your face. I'll even get his wife to plead with him to curse you. Here's Satan, the most arrogant of all, thinking he can prove God wrong. And God treats him like a goldfish in his little, you know, not fish pond, whatever that thing is, aquarium. It's a little aquarium. He's just, God just runs it. And, and if Job happens to be part of the equation of God humbling Satan, who are you to stop me? This isn't about you. This world isn't about you. This earth isn't about you. This city is not about you. 
Your family is not about you. It's about God. And God is reminding Job that God is the one who humbles the proudest of all creatures, Satan. And if God wants to use you to do it, then he'll use you to do it. Now, how does God ultimately humble Satan? By crushing his head. Not just by winning this argument with Job, but by Jesus going to the cross. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he kills death, doesn't he? Death dies on the cross. And he rises from the dead. And Satan is defeated at the cross. His head is crushed. And so if God wants to use Job to crush Satan, if God wants to use the greatest of all sufferers, Jesus, to crush Satan, then God will do it. And God has done it. And that's why we can trust him in our suffering. Tom Schreiner says, One answer to the problem of evil is finally given to Job. Job must realize his finiteness and trust in the Lord. The world was created and is sustained by the sovereign Lord, not Job. So God asks Job and God asks you this morning, do you control behemoth? Do you control death? Do you control all the living creatures of the world? Do you control Satan? Can you control him and tame him and treat him like a pet? Can you? No. Then why would you question me? Who are you? To question me. And who do you think I am? That's the point. Now, let me say one thing to non-Christians and we'll, we'll go to the second and third point, which is a lot shorter in one chapter. If you're not a Christian, you might say, this is why I can't believe in Christianity. Because if God is all good and all powerful and, and all wise and all loving, then why does he allow bad things to happen? This proves that God isn't real. God doesn't exist. Well, the answer of Job is saying to you, if you're not a Christian, first of all, I understand that question. That's a hard question to answer. And we don't have a, a full answer because God doesn't give us a full answer. At best, we have a half answer. So let me give you the half answer. The half answer is twofold. Number one, if God is so big and so powerful and so loving that you could be mad at him for not solving your suffering, if he's that big, then he's also big enough to have a good reason that you can't understand. Right? You can't have it both ways. You can't be, he's so big that I'm mad at him. Well, if he's so big, then he's so big that he could give an answer. He can have an answer that you can't understand or that he doesn't have to reveal to you. So you either have to not be mad at God or trust that he has an answer that you can't understand. You can't have it both ways. Secondly, God is not like the non-Christian gods, the gods of other religions, or even like the, the non-god of atheism where, where suffering is meaningless. As if there's no meaning or, God, or the gods don't care about our suffering. The Christian God is different because he enters into our suffering. He becomes a man born of a virgin named Jesus. And he lives a perfect life that we should have lived. He suffers and is betrayed and he dies on the cross and is crushed not just by the Romans and the Jews, but by God for the sins of the world. Jesus knows suffering. God knows suffering. Not just because he's all-knowing, but because he experienced it himself. So don't think, brother and sister, when you're suffering, that God doesn't care. He cares. And not just from the far not just from far away. He cares so much that he entered into it and took worse suffering than we will ever experience if we're in Christ Jesus. Okay, so the first thing to do, and the longest thing, is to just let those four chapters sit on your heart and mind. Heed and hear God's words. I am God, you are not. But let's go to the second and third point here. So don't only 
Don't only, um, what was the first R here? Don't only um, receive God's words, but secondly, respond to God's word. How does Job respond? Let's look at Job's response, chapter 42. Then Job replied, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. So look at verse 2 first. Job says, God can do what? All things, and none of his plans can be thwarted, right? Or, or hindered. That's like Psalm 135, 6. Yahweh does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all their depth. Job 32, 7. O Lord God, you yourself made the heavens and the earth by your great power and with your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Ephesians 1.11, he works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. God has absolute power with no checks and balances. There are no checks and balances on God. He has absolute, complete control and power with no check and no balance outside of himself. It's all him. That's what it means to be God. Absolute sovereignty, Jonathan Edwards writes, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. It's scary when you think that God has absolute power, isn't it? Because that means you can't do anything to stop him. And that's true. You can't. But when you know that God is not only all-powerful, but all-kind, and he'll use that power for your good, it moves from fear and scariness to sweetness. That God will do all in his power, not to make you central, but to give you himself, because he's central. And so Job here gets that. Look at verse 3. He realizes that God spoke to him. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Verse 4, he's quoting God still because he was listening to him. When you respond to God, you better quote his words. Take his words seriously. Don't just use Christian slogans. Read Bible verses. Here he is. You said, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. That's what you said, God. And I heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I abhor myself. I take back my words. I reject my words and I repent in dust and ashes. He sees God's sovereignty. He takes God's words seriously enough to quote them. And then he abhors himself. He rejects his words and he repents in dust and ashes. That's how we respond to God. We respond with repentance and faith in his words. We respond with brokenness. God was kind enough to speak. God was kind enough to correct Job. God did not owe Job an answer, but he still came, didn't he? He still came and gave him an answer. That's grace. This is grace. 38 through 41 is grace. That God would speak to Job. That God would speak to us this morning. This is grace. That he would even give us a half answer. When he doesn't need to give us any answer. He was kind enough to correct. He was inviting Job through this correction into the sweetness of repentance. And into the sweetness of knowing God. That's why Isaiah 66 two says, I will look on this person. One who is what? Humble or broken and contrite in spirit, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. If you don't tremble at God's words, then you're not humble and broken yet. And if you're not humble and broken yet, God resists the proud. 
but gives what to the humble? Grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God in repentance. In verses 7 through 9, look at verses 7 through 9. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends. As they try to walk out the door, right? Walking out the door and like the spotlight turns on them. Turn around, got caught as they try to sneak out. I'm angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now take seven bulls and seven rams, which is never commanded, by the way. Seven, that's like a number of completion. That's how, how completely failed they were. They are complete failures in their wisdom, quote unquote, to Job. Take seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then who's going to pray for them? Job. Who are they saying had the secret sin? Who was the guilty one? Who was the one that just needed to fess up? Job. Who's the one who's going to pray for them? Job. It's like perfect justice here. Yeah. You guys thought Job was the wrong one. You guys are the wrong ones. This guy is going to pray for you because he was right and you were wrong. He did not sin. I did not do this because he had some secret sin. Then my servant Job will pray for you. I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with you as your folly deserves. For you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, went and did as the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted whose prayer? Job's prayer. So when, you, when God answers you, what do you do? When God answers you, you respond with repentance, right? You respond by hearing his word. You respond by brokenness. But you don't only respond by doing that. God doesn't restore you just for you. He restores you to be a blessing to who? To others. That's right. It's not just about you and Jesus. He restored you for a purpose. Now you go pray for them. If God leads you to repentance and leads you to restoration, he's doing that so you would be an instrument of his to bless other people. And so the application here is basically we need to intercede for others and gospelize them, don't we? So that they would be restored. So as a church, we need to intercede for one another. As a church, we need to reconcile with one another. As a church, we need to point each other to God. And we need to pray for one another to see God. That's our greatest need. And we need to do that with the, with the non-Christians of the world as well. We need to be a, a gospel witness to them. So that's number two. Respond to God's words. With quoting them, with repentance, and with gospelizing others. With ministry. With gospel ministry. That's how you respond when God answers you. And lastly, third. Rejoice. So... You're going to receive God's words. You're going to respond to God's words. And thirdly, now you're going to rejoice in God's words and actions. That's what Job did. And they lived happily ever after. That's, that's what happens here. It's a happy ending. Let's look at it. First of all, how is this a happy ending? A few things. First of all, was Job vindicated before his accusers, his three friends? Yeah. Yes, he was cleared, right? That's great. He's also vindicated. Look at, verses, look at verse 10. After Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his prosperity and doubled his previous possessions. So not only is Job vindicated before his accusers, he's vindicated before the accuser. Who was the accuser? Satan. Saying that Job's going to do what to God? He's going to what? Curse God. Did he? No. So God was right and Satan was wrong. Job is vindicated before the accuser. His faith is real. He's not just saying he believes in Jesus and then living any way he wants throughout the week and saying, well, I'm a Christian. He really believes in Jesus or in God here. It would have been Jesus if it was New Covenant. Not only that, is he vindicated before the accuser. Third, he's restored to the community of image bearers. Look at verse 11. 
all his brothers, sisters, and former acquaintances, where did, what did they do? They came to his house and dined with him in his house. They sympathized with him and comforted him concerning all the adversity the Lord had brought him. Each one gave him a kesita and a gold earring. So they're eating with him. They're giving him gifts. They're fellowshipping with him. The point here is that he's restored to the community. He was estranged from the community. He was cut off from the community. They all were like, Ugh, Job, stay away from me. But now he's back. Not only that, and I think this is the most important part. It said in verse 10 that he restored his property. Look at verse 12. The Lord did what to Job? Say the word. The Lord did what? Blessed. Blessed. The Lord did what? Blessed. Blessed. And it's not just Lord, L-O-R-D, lowercase O-R-D, but capital. So what's his name? Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is now blessing Job. What's the blessing in verse 12? More than his life at first. He owned 14,000 sheep instead of 7,000 sheep. He owed 6,000 camels instead of 3,000 camels. He owed 1,000 yoke of oxen instead of 500 and 1,000 female donkeys instead of 500. He doubled his wealth. And then verse 13, he also had seven sons and three daughters. So he had another set of 10 kids. Job's wife deserves a little bit of credit, right? (laughs) To have 20 kids. But he doubled the children in the sense that it's the same set, but now, praise God, it wasn't 30 kids, right? For Job's Job's wife, it's like enough restoration there. Um, but but the point is, now he has 20 kids, though. I mean, now that Job is in, the, is in heaven and will be with us in the new earth, he has 20 instead of 10 to celebrate with. Double the kids. And then it talks about how beautiful they are and how blessed they are and how they receive an inheritance. The point here is that God blessed Job. Job is not cursed. And it's Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did God promise Abraham in Genesis 12? In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed in your offspring. Why? Because all the families in Genesis 1 through 11 are not blessed. They're what? Cursed. And God is going to reverse the curse in the seed of Abraham. He is Yahweh. He will fulfill his covenant through his son, Jesus Christ, who's also called Yahweh, Isaiah 6. And so Yahweh will fulfill his covenant of blessing. And that's why there's a happy ending, brothers and sisters. There's a happy ending because God will bless in the end. So, some lessons as we wrap up. Lesson number, a few lessons here. You don't have to write them down, but just think about them. God answers your why question. Why am I suffering, God? God answers the why question with a who answer. He doesn't answer your why question. He asks and answers the who question. Why am I suffering, God? What's the answer? Satan and I made a what? Made a deal, right? Does he tell Job that? He doesn't answer the why question. Why am I suffering? Because I'm God and I do what I want. So repent. And Job repents. Because Job didn't need a rational answer. He did not need the reason why he was suffering. He needed God. You don't need need the why answered. You need the who answered. If God would have told Job the Satan deal... That wouldn't have comforted his soul at the end. I mean, maybe give him a little bit of reason, but that's not what, God, what Job needed at the end. Job needs God, right? And so do you. We don't need answers to all of our questions. We need God because God is actually the answer to all of our questions, even when he doesn't answer our specific questions. Amen. And so we trust God. We repent from our sins. And then we look to the future with hope and confidence. Job was restored in the end. You need to look forward to the to the future with hope and confidence. Here we got Job's happy ending. 
but we don't know about our happy ending yet. We're still in the suffering phase, right? So suffer now, brothers and sisters, with, with hope, but look to the future. God doesn't just tell you, I'm God, stop, stop crying, stop whining. God cares. And God says, I'm not just telling you to stop whining. I'm saying, I'm God. I sent my son to die for you. And guess what? There's a future resurrection and there's going to be a new earth and you will reign with me on my throne forever and ever. It will be good in the end. Not only will it be good, it will be better than if you didn't suffer now. Your suffering now is preparing for you. This light momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. That's what Paul says. Your suffering is not meaningless. It's preparing you for future glory. So suffer well. Suffer with hope. Grieve with hope. If you're not a Christian, this blessing is not for you unless you receive the blessing. And the blessing that you could have reversing the curse of sin is only through Jesus Christ. God made you. He owns you. You're accountable to him. I'm accountable to him. We're sinners, and so we deserve God's judgment and curse. But God sent his son Jesus into the world to take the curse on the tree for us so that you could be blessed. He died for your sins in such a way that if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, even today, you will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call on Jesus to save you from your sins. Repent from your sins, repent from your own righteousness, and trust in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And he will give you life. And he will give you hope. And he will give you his blessing now, throughout your suffering life, into eternity. And you will be glad at what he's done. Job is glad. He wasn't glad when he was suffering, but he's glad now, isn't he? He was glad at the end. And so we ought to be glad as well. If you read the last two verses, Job lived 140 years after this. And saw his children and their children to the third and fourth generation. Job died old and full of days. It was a happy ending. Life is worth living, not because of the absence of suffering, but because of our relationship with the living God in suffering. That's why life is worth living. The goal of life, Tom Schreiner says, is to see the king in his beauty. So what we need most, what you need most right now, at any moment of your life, what we need most is to see God. It's not our answers, our questions answered. It's not the other things we think we need. It's not healing. It's not reconciliation, reconciliation with a friend. It's not a smooth conversation. It's not financial provision. It's not peace of mind or heart. It's God. We need to see God. That's our greatest need. That's our greatest hope. That's the point of the book of Job. I close with the story of George Mueller. I told you his wife died, right? After 39 years. He's the one who preached his wife's funeral. And you know what text he chose? Psalm 119, verse 68. Thou art good and doest good. So here's a man preaching at his wife's funeral, and here's what he says. Mueller recounts here um, how he prayed when he discovered she had, his wife had rheumatic fever. Yes, my, this is prayer before she died. Yes, my father, the times of my darling wife are in thy hands. Thou wilt do the very best thing for her and for me, whether life or death. If it may be, raise up yet again, my precious wife. Thou art able to do it, though she is so ill. But howsoever thou dealest with me, only help me to continue to be perfectly satisfied with thy holy will. And then she died. And when she died, Mueller said this. I bow. I am satisfied with the will of my heavenly father. I seek by perfect submission to his holy will to glorify him. I kiss, this is really hard to say, but I kiss continually the hand that has afflicted me. 
Mueller says elsewhere, the hand that afflicts me has the other hand upholding me. I kiss continually the hand that has afflicted me. Without an effort in my inmost soul, or without an effort, my inmost soul habitually joys in the joy of that loved departed one. He's talking about his wife. I'm rejoicing in her joy. Her happiness gives joy to me. He talks about how he misses her like he misses no one else. And then he says this, my dear daughter, so George Miller and his daughter lost, you know, his wife and her mom. My dear daughter and I would not have her back. Were it possible to produce it by the turn of a hand of God, God himself has done it and we are satisfied with him. Even if I could have her back and God would answer my prayer to have her back, I wouldn't. She's way happier there. She might get mad at me actually. Probably, right? <laughs> Why'd you bring me back here? Dying is game, you know, um, as, as Paul. But he's saying, I, I, if, if I could, I wouldn't have her back. God has done it, and we are satisfied with him. That doesn't mean God explained it to, to, to George Mueller. He just trusted in the God of hope and the God of blessing in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book of Job. It's been a long series. It's been long sermons longer than typical. But we pray, Father, that you would help us to suffer well. We want to receive your full answer. We want to heed your answer to our questions. We want to receive your words. We want to respond to your words with repentance and faith and obedience and great commission gospelizing for however many days you have us on this earth. And we want to rejoice in all of your actions and your words because in the end, When Christ comes again, we will rise from the dead and we will look back on every pain and every suffering and know that you were absolutely 100% good and wise in why you did what you did. We confess that we don't know it now and we are humbly trembling at your word, satisfied to only rest on what you have revealed. We trust your heart. We trust your cross. We trust the resurrection to come. Help us to help each other Speak God's words to each other that we might grow in trusting Christ that comes by hearing the word of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.